Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. I'm Katharina Emschelmann, Deputy Director at the Center. Each episode, we invite an international security scholar to help unpack a hot topic that's made the news. In today's episode, we talk about Europe's top risk in 2021, according to the Eurasia Group, the German federal election in September and its foreign policy implication. Most parties haven't nominated their candidates yet, but one thing's for sure, Chancellor Angela Merkel will leave office after almost 16 years. Her departure will be a watershed for Germany and Europe, writes The Guardian. That's why I called Kai Oppermann, a professor for international politics at the Chemnitz University of Technology. His research focuses on German foreign policy and the dynamics of coalition governments. Kai and I discuss how to lose an election, whether Germany is still a civilian power, also why Germany did not participate in the 2011 intervention in Libya, and finally, what to expect from a potential coalition between the conservative CDU and the Greens. Now, I'm excited to welcome Kai Oppermann as our January guest scholar on the Berlin Security Beat. Hello. Hello. Kai, you're a professor in Chemnitz, a city in eastern Germany that's just been awarded the title of European Capital of Culture 2025. For those of our listeners who haven't been there yet, what's it like in Chemnitz? Oh, it's an old industrial place um, close to the border of the Czech Republic. It used to be called Karl Marxstadt. So we have links, of course, to this past in Eastern Germany as well. And we are really excited having this title. So we do hope that we will attract more students on the back of that. All right. Thank you. As you know, this is the Berlin Security Beat. So I got to ask you, what do you think? What song best describes the current state of the world? Well, it would have to be a song, I think, that captures um, how things in international affairs are in flux, seem to be changing in unpredictable ways, in a rapid sequence of events, financial crisis, Ukraine, Brexit, Trump, Syria, uh, COVID-19, Biden. And the first song that came to my mind that does this, and perhaps, I mean, it shows my age and, you know, I like R.E.M. It's an R.E.M. song from the 1980s. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. And it's a great song, yeah. But the lyrics, to me at least, give a sense of this kind of disconnected flow of events, chaos, disorder, uh, but also how we as an audience and the political actors try to find words uh, for these events and try to explain what's going on. And I think this is what we do observe in international affairs. <laughs> yes, thank you. On September 26th, Germans will elect their federal parliament, the Bundestag. This election marks the end of Angela Merkel's 15 years as German chancellor. Her departure drives Europe's top risk, say, the Eurasia Group, a political risk consultancy. Why is that? Well, uh, because individuals matter in foreign affairs. Um, I mean, elections in Germany will always matter because Germany is important in Europe. But this election will matter particularly because, as you have said, we will have a change at the helm of who is doing German foreign policy. And it's a bit like changing horses in midstream. 
we have all these crises going on. Europe faces an increasingly turbulent world. And at this point in time, one of the most important countries, if not the leading country in the EU, uh, changes its leadership. That creates uncertainty, raises concerns about the reliability and, and predictability of German foreign policy. Um, and in particular, because as you have said, Angela Merkel has been there for so long. Everybody knows her. Uh, the chancellor in Germany sets the broad guidelines of policy, including foreign policy. The German chancellor is in a relatively strong domestic position, not as strong as the French president, but compared to other parliamentary systems, uh, quite strong. So the worldviews, the beliefs of who is in charge, that matters. Uh, and we know how Angela Merkel ticks, but we know less about the foreign policy views of whoever will succeed her. So we're naturally interested in the future direction of German foreign policy. However, we might not learn too much about that during the campaign stage of the German elections. And here's why I'm asking this. In 2017, the German weekly Die Zeit ran an article that was titled How to Lose an Election. And spoiler alert, they said it was make it about foreign policy. Do you think that conventional wisdom holds true? Well, um, that, that's a good one, actually. But the problem is that sometimes you can't choose not to make foreign policy an issue. So although it might be indeed the case that actors would prefer not to talk about it too much, in particular because nobody has the bonus of having been in charge and having great expertise in foreign policy. But, you know, things happen. Um, and this is why foreign policy does, from time to time, become a salient, important issue in um, elections, no matter whether the candidates want that or not. Yeah, you say sometimes they can choose. If you look at the world, what topics do you think might come up during the campaign stage? Well, the first thing, it's a more general one, but the first thing that I think will come up is, and that links back to what I said at the beginning, the foreign policy views of the candidates for office, be it for chancellor or for minister. Uh, so I think we can expect the media, as well as political competitors, to kind of test the foreign policy metal Uh, and competence of what are essentially untested foreign policy leaders. Uh, so at one point, I think we have seen that with Armin Laschet, the new leader of the Christian Democrats, so Angela Merkel's party, so a strong candidate for future chancellor, we don't know yet, but uh, we've seen this kind of, well, I won't say character assassination, but clearly the international media tends to cast him in a very negative foreign policy Uh, light, an unreliable foreign policy actor, cozy with Russia, soft on China, and putting business above everything else. So there you go. We don't know if that's fair or not, but observers try to make sense of the leaders who may become chancellor and try to see and learn what their foreign policy views are. You are an expert on German foreign policy and you wrote a paper titled Between a Rock and a Hard Place, Navigating Domestic and International Expectations on German Foreign Policy. So I'd like to know, what are these differing expectations? Germany uh, has been famously described by Hans Maul, a well-known German foreign policy scholars and, and colleagues, as a civilian power in international affairs. So that's a role Germany plays on the international stage. Can you explain what that is? 
Um, so that's a role that works to civilize international affairs, seeks to promote multilateral cooperation, is very much in favor of international law, skeptical towards the use of, of military force. And these roles define, delineate, describe certain repertoires um, of, of foreign policy behaviors on the international stage. States are socialized into these roles and through repeated enactment of these roles that comes to guide foreign policy behavior. Now, why am I saying that? Because that has been the role that has been ascribed to Germany, first the old Western Germany, now unified Germany since the end of World War II. Problem is, this comes under pressure increasingly uh, from the international level and the domestic level. Can you maybe give us an example of that? Yes, on the international level, what you see is that in particular Germany's Western allies are asking more and more of Germany. Germany should become a security provider rather than a security consumer. Germany should lead in Europe. Whenever there's a crisis, Germany is asked to deliver and help solve that crisis. And that can sit uneasily with the reluctance to use military force when it is about multilateral uh, missions. And it can sit uneasily with this uh, reflexive multilateralism that is part of the civilian power role because this foregrounds consensus seeking rather than perhaps leadership in Europe, which is why Germany has been called the reluctant hegemon in Europe, for example. I remember reading a piece by you where you argue that Germany's current foreign policy tends to attach relatively less weight to the expectations of its allies uh, to be more driven by domestic policies and therefore to be altogether less predictable. I think that was in 2012. Do you think that's still the case? Well, I do actually, because I think there is that tendency that the German domestic political arena becomes more complex, more difficult to manage for German foreign policy decision makers. Why is that? Because the party system becomes more diverse. So we used to have quite a broad mainstream consensus about what German foreign policy should look like, pro-Western, pro-European civilian power. But now we do have parties on the right and the left, the alternative for Germany, as well as the left party, as well as voices within the mainstream parties who increasingly begin to call that into question. For example, multilateralism should no longer be reflexive, but Germany should only promote European integration if and so long as it is in the German interest. Think back to the Eurozone crisis. Uh, so I think because there is more contestation in the domestic arena, perhaps more relevance in terms of electoral politics, actors tend to foreground domestic pressures vis-a-vis -vis international pressures, perhaps even more so when an untested, inexperienced, perhaps rather weak at the beginning leadership, new coalition comes in, perhaps they will have to have two eyes, as it were, on the domestic arena. Well, you already talked about coalitions a little bit. Germany is a mixed-member proportional representation system, 
say that five times fast. Um, and coalition governments are the norm in Germany. Currently, we have a so-called grand coalition. And I would like you to take me through the process. If you, as a scholar, want to know the foreign policy positions, the role conceptions behind that, how do we get to that? What's, what's the scientific process? What's the method you use? There are different methods, many methods, so I, I'm sure my colleagues will, will uh, many of them will now disagree. But talking about coalition foreign policy specifically, I mean, there are different stages. And the first stage after an election is coalition formation. So there will be negotiations and that involves portfolio uh, distribution. So the first interesting question for us will be who gets the ministries in the foreign policy executive. And in Germany, uh, but that's just a tradition, if you like, it has always been since the grand coalition in the 1960s, the junior coalition partner who gets the foreign office. And that gives the junior partner kind of outsized influence on German foreign policy in a coalition because they can use the bureaucratic Uh, kind of resources and the agenda-setting resources, the visibility of that ministry to uh, shape and to hijack, as we sometimes call that in the literature, uh, foreign policy and to own the issue. So we will see, will that be the case again? Um, can you talk about a case where you saw that happening, that you have a specific issue and the junior partner shaped the foreign policy on that? The specific issue involves the liberals as a junior partner to a coalition under Angela Merkel when Germany had to decide on the NATO mission, 2011 I'm talking, the NATO mission in Libya. And at that time, Germany abstained in the UN Security Council. And I'm not saying that this went against the wishes of the CDU, but I'm saying that Westerwelle, the foreign minister from the junior partner back then, very much went public early on with his opposition to taking part in that mission, which kind of decided that issue before the coalition could actually uh, really in any serious sense discuss that. And that is what I meant by hijacking. The junior coalition partner used its position at the helm of the foreign office to really shape German foreign policy in this case. So if you look at the current grand coalition, can you tell us what role conceptions we are looking at, how the two foreign policy positions uh, work together and what successes and failures this has produced? Well, I think that's a difficult one with this particular grand coalition, I think, because it's all about crises. And if you think about these crises, I mean, Brexit is always top of my head. I mean, it was Angela Merkel steering that process. So I think part of the problem for the Social Democrats has been that it was difficult for them, although they hold the foreign office, to really portray a separate, a distinctive foreign policy image of themselves. But that would be different probably with the Greens. Um, I mean, that's the one coalition we are all speculating about, that there will be a black-green coalition. And I would expect that to be different then. That is interesting. Like you said, if we're looking at the polls, a potential outcome of the German elections might be a new coalition on the federal level, a coalition between the CDU and the Greens. Um, the parties are quite different. And for that scenario, think tanker Ulrike Franke recently offered an optimistic take. She said why a black-green government could finally create a coherent defense policy. Based on your experience and your research, is that possible? 
Well, the question, of course, would be what is a coherent defense policy? But I see the point because the Greens have, of course, changed their approach to foreign affairs significantly since the 1980s and 90s. So they are now one of the more and most consistent supporters of multilateral interventions, military interventions and Bundeswehr deployments. So I do actually agree that the conservatives, the CDU and the Greens are not oceans apart in foreign policy. And I think the opportunity of such a coalition would be that because these two parties have quite different uh, support coalitions and constituents, that having them in a coalition might build a consensus that brings these diverse coalitions in the general public, in society together, because that is one of the problems in German foreign policy, that there is this disconnect between the elites and the constituents and foreign policy public opinion. Um, so because they come from well, different spectrums, let's say, and because, however, they at the same time have converged on being a pro-European, pro-transatlantic parties, I can actually see the promise of such a coalition. At the same time, there will be areas of conflict. I mean, we mentioned Russia. So uh, North Stream 2 is one of the things I would look out for, uh, how that plays out in the campaign, because there we have the Greens having a very, very critical position. They want to stop the project, this pipeline project under the Baltic Sea, which can bring natural gas from Russia to Germany. The Greens, very critical for ecological reasons, but also because it kind of supports an autocratic regime in Russia, whereas the CDU emphasizes the economic advantages of that project and mentions energy security of Germany. So we have conflicts still, uh, but I think none of this is a deal breaker. And I tend to agree that there's a lot of promise in such a coalition. That is interesting. I would like to ask one more question concerning your process so we talked about the distribution of power between the coalition partners, but I would still like to learn how do you get to the essence of the foreign policy position and then how do you trace how these shape the actual policy? Maybe you could again pick one example and then tell me how you got from A to B. So, of course, this will now be about explanation, not prediction. So we observe some sort of decision that has happened and we try to find plausible explanations for that. So the first thing we tend to do is we tend to use a method called process tracing. So we try to yeah, trace the process, the clues in the name, we trace the process of that causal mechanisms that have led to a particular foreign policy decision. So we need to know who has been in charge. Where has a decision been taken? Which ministry was leading the agenda? Once we know that, we can think about what foreign policy positions will the different players have brought to the table. We know that from research, from our knowledge of the parties, but we also do interviews with decision makers or other experts in the media, in think tanks, those who have been closely involved with the decision or have access to decision makers. And once we know about the kind of process that led from A to B and who has been part of that and what positions they have brought to the table, we can map that onto our theoretical knowledge, which is, of course, again, derived from many, many analyses that other scholars have made. And if that fits, 
if we can observe empirically what our theoretical models tell us is a plausible explanation, then we can be confident that we have a plausible case for saying that is how the decision came about. It's never 100% proof. We can't look inside decision makers' heads, but that's the best we can do from the outside to reduce complexity and make sense of the world. Thank you so much. Finally, as we are heading into this election year, can you tell us what you think is the best documentary or movie on elections so that we can prepare? Well, that's really difficult. So two attempts, right? One is Wag the Dog, which is, I think, quite a good comedy about how advisors to a U.S. president kind of fabricate some media illusion about a war in order to divert attention from some scandal. But the more serious one is a very good documentary, again, about the U.S. and about U.S. presidents. It's called War Room, and it's about Bill Clinton's successful election campaign of 1992. I think this has great insights about campaign strategy, campaign organization, but I'm afraid it's another cultural reference to the 1990s, which, uh, yeah, again, tells more about my age than anything else. <laughs> Thank you very much. Dankeschön und auf Wiederhören. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This was an episode of the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, review, and tell a friend. And of course, don't miss our next episode coming out next month. Music